I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the greater geopolitical implications of the war between Russia and Ukraine, we have with us CSIS's Brzezinski Chair in Geostrategy and Middle East Program Director and Senior VP, John Alterman. John, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be with you. As the war between Russia and Ukraine is playing out, how can we see that countries are perhaps not as committed to the U.S. rules-based order as we once maybe thought? For the United States, the key aspect of international cooperation is on sanctions. There was a sense that the U.S. would rally the world to make Russia hurt. And in fact, the world isn't very interested in making Russia hurt. The world is interested in letting the United States sort out its issues, and they'll pursue their own interests. And if the United States need something, the U.S. can ask, and they'll have an individual negotiation on on what they get for it. But there's not really a sense of responsibility to upholding a system, which I think the United States thought it was investing in for 75 years. And I think the way much of the world treats it is, well, you were spending money on it, but what have you spent on us lately? John, that makes sense. So let me ask you this, though. How many countries are really supportive of our sanctions on Russia? And who, to you, are the notable exceptions? The countries that are most supportive are countries to which we are most closely tied. They're countries in Europe, countries in Northeast Asia, countries which, by the way, feel a direct threat from Russia or a direct threat from China. And outside of those countries, there's really no support. I mean, important countries like India are not really on board. China has never really signed on to this rules-based order. Many people think China is challenging a rules-based order because China's preference is that everybody deals with things in a bilateral relationship. And in all of its relationships except one, China is the preponderant power. So China isn't really interested in constraining itself. The Chinese view is we need to grow. We have been stumbling and have been held back for years. We are rising to our appropriate level. Why should we constrain ourselves after we've developed, after we've become really powerful the way we should be, then we'll constrain ourselves. But for now, we're playing catch up and we shouldn't be bound by these kinds of rules. So as I say, countries that feel a direct threat are interested, and countries that don't feel a direct threat are not interested at all. So don't the Middle East countries, though, have a pretty serious stake in this one way or another? Well, they don't see themselves having a a serious stake. They see themselves having interesting, complicated, sometimes important relationships with Russia. You see that in Israel. You see that in Saudi Arabia. You see that in Egypt. You see it in the United Arab Emirates. All of these countries have a line of effort with Russia, in addition to a really important relationship with the United States. And their feeling is we shouldn't choose and we shouldn't have to choose. We should pursue our interests. And in this case, Ukraine is not in our direct interest. 
Why shouldn't Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE have to choose? And Egypt, you know, and Jordan. I mean, these are, in the case of Jordan, Egypt, and, and Israel, they all are recipients of large amounts of aid from the United States. And in the case of Saudi Arabia and UAE, we're their biggest customer. So China is the biggest customer. Right. China is the biggest customer. And so they are customers of us. I think the feeling in some of these countries, certainly in the Gulf, is we don't ask for anything for free. We're buying your weapon systems. And in some cases, it helps sustain some of your platforms. The, a lot of the Gulf states pay for the U.S. military facilities in their area. They don't feel that, that they're in debt. They feel like they are getting what they pay for. And the U.S., if it really needs something, needs to give more. The other thing, by the way, is that, that the Saudis and the Emiratis in particular feel that the Iranians, via the Houthi rebels in Yemen, have been threatening their populations, threatening their economies, and the United States is not nearly as concerned as it should be. So if the United States wants their support, the United States has to be more supportive of them. You know, when it comes to Israel and Egypt and, and Jordan, I think they have very different relationships. Egypt has felt snubbed by the United States for some period of time and has been trying to develop an alternative relationship with Russia, not only to supply weapons, but to build a nuclear plant on the Mediterranean. The, the Egyptians are very interested in resuming a relationship with Russia that in the Soviet Union days was basically cut off in 1970 after the Soviets built the high dam at Aswan. The Israelis have their own calculus. Not only is 10% of the population of Israel Russian immigrants, they are looking at Russians essentially as a neighbor across the border in Syria, and they deconflict with Russia on security issues when the Israelis attack Syria. They are interested in Mediterranean gas, where the Russians have a role to play. So the Israelis see themselves as having a very complicated agenda. And it's not just, we'll line up whenever the United States wants us to do something, we'll do it. The Israelis think that they have earned the right to have a more independent foreign policy. And there are some people who in the United States who argue that Israel at a $4 billion a year clip in US aid needs to be a little more solicitous of the United States. By the way, there are some Israelis who feel that, and there seems to be a division between the foreign minister and the prime minister. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, the foreign minister says, look, you really have to be a lot more understanding of the United States. And the prime minister is arguing for an independent line. I mean, there are ideological divisions as well. So it's complicated. But what's clear to me is that it's not an open and shut case in the Middle East despite the fact that for the last several decades, most U.S. military combat has been in the Middle East to further some understanding of a rule of law. Now, you could argue the U.S. didn't apply it. You could argue the U.S. applied it selectively. You could argue whatever you want to argue. But I think for Americans, there's a sense that, that, that we've been investing in this part of the world and investing in, in order and rule following this part of the world. And this part of the world can't be bothered to support the U.S. at all. You know, it's interesting, Yair Lapid, who you just mentioned as Israel's foreign minister, 
who will be Israel's prime minister in a year or so, if the government stands. There's a lot of ifs. So Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett, the current prime minister, don't see exactly eye to eye on whether Israel should support the U.S. in a full-throated way on this. But maybe what they do agree on is that Israel can play a role um, as a peace broker at some point. Is that? Do you agree with that? I mean, they say it, but I don't see how Israel plays a role as a peace broker. I mean, the problem is not that the United States and, and Russia don't have a way to talk to each other. The problem is the United States and Russia have profoundly different worldviews. And, you know, frankly, the United States has been putting considerable effort and tens of billions of dollars into ensuring that the Russians don't win. And a lot of Russian soldiers have died as a consequence. I think that's a, a problem that's not solved merely by having a mediator. I think it's a problem that's solved by one side or the other deciding well, there's no way we're going to get what we need by following this course of action. So, John, some of our top allies aren't with us or aren't as with us as we would want. Does this signal to you that's a sign of U.S. declining influence in the world? I think I wouldn't put it directly as a sign of declining U.S. power and influence, although certainly the self-confidence that we are leading the world has to be seriously shaken by the way the world is treating this. I think there's a way in which the United States hasn't been able to make a case that this really threatens universal values, that this really does affect the way the world works. People see this as a a small thing. It's it's a dispute between two countries and let them work it out. And I think that there is a way in which when people feel a threat, as people certainly did during the Cold War, there is a willingness to choose sides. When people don't feel a threat, they feel no need to sacrifice anything to choose sides. To me, the, the sort of warning sign that this should contain is that the United States has assumed that if there's a conflict with China, that countries would be supportive of a U.S. view, a U.S. effort to maintain a, a rules-based system. And I think for a lot of countries that see China as their number one trading partner, and by the way, China's number one trading partner, not just of countries like Saudi Arabia, China's number one trading partner of the United States. But for a lot of countries for which China's the number one trading partner, they're not interested in choosing sides. They're interested in having the conflict go away. And it seems to me that a, a US-China conflict, where the rest of the world says, this is between you guys, work it out, is very different from a US-China conflict, where people are actually working to defend the way the world works. And it seems to me that this is a harbinger of the possibility the world really isn't interested in making any sacrifices to preserve the way the world works. They're interested in the United States and China working something out, and they'll just deal with it. So, you know, it's hard to handicap whether the world would line up with the United States or not in a conflict with China, because, of course, it depends on the conflict. It depends on the the global economy, lots of different factors fly into this. But why might the world choose to line up with China against us? Well, certainly, if, if there's a sense that we started something, 
I think the world would be interested in us getting off starting something. I think it's very unlikely we're going to start something with China. I don't think the U.S. looks to pick battles. And and I think China is going to be pretty wary of getting into combat with the United States because their troops haven't been in a lot of combat. That's and right. I think, you know, the Russians have been in combat and they're performing really poorly. So performing well in combat is really hard. And I don't think there's any reason to think the Chinese would be especially skillful at it, given how little combat experience they've had. That being said, I could see a lot of really large tensions between the U.S. and China. I mean, really serious tensions that go into cyber and, and other things. Tensions where, where it is obvious that things are really going wrong, something short of a shooting war, but something more than a trade dispute. And I wonder just how much support the U.S. would get in that circumstance and how much the world would say, you know, there's truth on both sides. Let's just figure out a way to get along. And I think that that's just very different for us than, than a lot of people are counting on. We've already seen some signs of it in Europe where countries have said, we, we don't want to align with you in being hostile with China. Maybe the Ukraine war persuades people that the international solidarity really matters. But I could see a situation where the U.S. assumes that it's leading a lot of other countries and it looks over its shoulder and it finds that nobody's following. It's hard to imagine how others might follow China around the world other than the United States. But like, in your view, does China have the upper hand on the United States geopolitically? No, China is is a decent spoiler for all these international systems efforts. China picks its spots. It doesn't try to do everything. It doesn't try to, to integrate economic and diplomatic and military and intelligence the way the United States does. They're very selective. And I think that selectivity uh, not only lowers the cost of China operating, but it gives them greater agility. The challenge for China is it doesn't give you as much power when you want to bring all the elements of, of government together. And I think this still remains something that the United States can do that no other country can do, is we can bring the entire power of the U.S. government and its ability to rally other countries and align them in a single effort. China doesn't have the ability to align, but has, I think, a growing ability to frustrate alignment. What that means, whether there are circumstances where China could lose that kind of support and acquiescence, I think are important things to think about. But as I say, to me, the really important thing to notice here is this idea of the order and the UN and all those things. I don't think are nearly as much in our corner as we think they are. I think we got used to having a lot of support during the Cold War, and we haven't totally internalized how much that's changed. And countries are saying, you know, that we don't have a dog in this fight. The superpowers act the way superpowers act. Small countries around superpowers have to be cognizant that you don't agonize a superpower because nobody's there to defend you. and that's up to you. And it's not, you know, small countries are protected by the rule of law, just like large countries. It doesn't go that way. And that's, I think, a different world than the one the U.S. has been trying to build through the U.N. system and everything else. So how much did 
our engagement in Afghanistan and Iraq change other countries' view of us? I think that the way the Iraq war was prosecuted hurt us a lot. I remember talking to a, a British diplomat before the Iraq war, this is probably 2002. And he said that, that most of the U.S. plans were either undoable or illegal. And there really was a concern among a bunch of our allies that there's no legal justification for what we were trying to do. And the Bush administration felt after 9-11, we didn't have the luxury of dotting all the I's and crossing the T's for legal niceties. You know, there are a number, I've gotten some correspondence on this, on the column I wrote in Defense One on this topic. Mm -hmm. And people were frustrated. Well, what about the Palestinians? And how come it's only, you know, blue-eyed blonde people who the U.S. goes to save and, you know, and 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 on and on that, that the U.S. hasn't cared about any number of people suffering and any number of people having their, their sovereignty violated. It only cares when it decides to care. And so why should we care? I think there's an element of truth to that, but I still think that when a country like Russia rolls over the border and tries to collapse another government, and essentially retake former territory. And let's face it, we're talking about Russia rolling over a democracy in Europe. Yeah, I just, I think that's, I mean, I, say, I, don't, I don't know why Middle Eastern countries would care about it being Europe, but I mean, this is, this is a real thing. And I think that just as people felt it was appropriate for the U.S. to defend Kuwait, I think it's, it's, there's certainly an argument to be made that that the Arab world should be just as attuned to the U.S. defending Ukraine, and it seems not to be. And and their argument is, you guys have have been picking and choosing your your battles all along with us, and why should we care? So what do we do with all this, John? I mean, this this doesn't bode well for the United States in the sense that we've tried to create a world order since the end of World War II. And many feel that world order is continuing to unravel. It is. And it, it unravels the, the more you have a common threat, the easier it is to align people. And the less you have a common threat, the harder it is to align people. I think we have to be realistic about where we are. We have to have some modest goals for what we can do. We have to have some modest expectations. I think we have to be very realistic about the world we're in. I think we can build coalitions. I think we can build support for international law. Partly we have to respect it and talk about it more. But you know, it's very hard in the United States when you have administrations that may care, administrations that may not care, presidents who have very different approaches to diplomacy and foreign policy, and, and even presidents who speak in very different ways. How do you create a consistent message for a half century when our politics are volatile, to say the least. Part of this problem is not just the world. Part of this problem isn't what we've been doing for the last 50 years. Part of the problem is us. And I think we have to have a conversation about the kind of world we want to live in. To give a, a brief history lesson, after the Israelis and the British and the French moved into Egypt in the Suez Canal Zone in 1956, the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, who was very hostile to the government of Egypt, said, well, whatever, we'll just deal with it. And it was President Eisenhower, based on his World War II experience, said, we can't allow this. 
because you can't allow a chaotic world with no rules because then you end up having to fight everywhere all the time. There have to be some parameters. There have to be some rules that people stand by. And Dulles, who was an international lawyer, had to be persuaded to apply international law. I still think there's a lot of wisdom in the Eisenhower approach, not because international law solves all the problems, not because international law is self-executing, but because a completely chaotic world where whoever is more willing to fight does better is not a world that's going to be prosperous. It's not a world we're going to want to live in. It's a world where if you thought that that the counterterrorism war was the long war. It's a war in which the U.S. is constantly fighting and constantly judging whether to fight. And I think it's a world that is not better for us or our children. And it's not better for the world either. So, John, because of our polarization, because of our politics, just the, the rest of the world is taking note of that, obviously. And does that mean that we lose our ability to do good in the world when we have such strife and polarization at home? No, I think, look, I think even, even when our politics are at their most dysfunctional, we can still do a lot of good in the world. But it's hard to lead when nobody knows where you're trying to go. And it's also very hard to lead when your friends don't know how to make you happy. And to me, this was one of the tragedies and missed opportunities of the Trump administration was for countries like Japan that were desperate to do exactly what the United States wanted it to do. They couldn't figure out where the U.S. was going and how to play a constructive role. And to me, one of the great advantages we have as a country is not only our countries largely bought on to where we think the world should go, but people want to make us happy most of the time. And that's an incredible advantage in the world, that people want to help you. People want to be part of it. I think we should make it easier for people to help us when they want to, but also when we need their help to make clear, you know, this time we need you and you have to line up and, and hopefully have a better result than we've had in the last few months. Do you think, John, that there's anything the United States can do that it's not already doing to help bring an end to this conflict in Ukraine? I think the end of the conflict in Ukraine is when the Russians decide the conflict is over. I am worried, as, as I think the intelligence community is, that the Russians are hoping to wait this out, that they think their patience for tension over the Ukraine is much greater than our patients. You know, with high oil prices and other things that, that come from this, it's certainly imaginable to me that a lot of the world gets really tired of this. And if the Russians make an offer that the Ukrainians don't want to take, say the Russians annex Donbass or something like that, and they say, okay, so we're ready to have this over. And the Ukrainians say, no, I don't know where that goes in American politics or global politics. I think we're yet to see that. But I do think the, the Russians think that democracies aren't very good at doing things for a long period of time. And they are good at doing things for a long period of time. The other piece of this, which I think we have to be cognizant of, is a Russia that is much less integrated with the global economy is a different kind of Russia. 
and a different kind of Russia than the, the Russia we were trying to build. So if you have sanctions in place for a long period of time, A, I'm not sure they get you to change Russian behavior in the near term, but it may also make it harder to change Russian behavior in the longer term. You won't have tools because the Russians won't have those ties. And then what you're left with is, do you want to fight them or not? In some ways, we have this as the problem with Iran, that there's nothing left to sanction with Iran. I mean, we don't have trade. Most countries have no trade with Iran. So how do you really shape what they do? I think sanctions are helpful in the process as they go on. They can help shape people's behaviors. But sanctions over time create realities that end up diminishing your leverage over your, your adversaries rather than increasing it. And that can create its own set of problems in the longer term. So, John, as you think of oil prices and the fatigue that we're already experiencing here in the United States, and certainly the Europeans are experiencing, have you ever thought that the Saudis and the UAE wouldn't take a call from the president of the United States who's calling them for their help and they're not answering his call? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how that unfolded, honestly. I know the Wall Street Journal reported they, they wouldn't take a call, and I know that the, the White House denied it. I'm not sure exactly what that is. It strikes me as, as something more complicated than the, the simple headline. But it's clear that the Saudis and the Emiratis know exactly what the president would like them to do, and it's clear they're not doing it. Right. I think that the Emiratis have a list of things they'd like from the Biden administration, the Saudis have a list of things they'd like from the Biden administration. I think it is notable we don't have an ambassador in either capital, and I don't think that's helpful. We don't have an assistant secretary of state. We have an acting assistant secretary of state. You know, this is a self-inflicted problem. Diplomacy is about getting people to do what they wouldn't otherwise do. That's what diplomacy is. Diplomacy is making people feel good. Diplomacy is getting people to do what they wouldn't otherwise do. And we don't have the diplomats in place to help facilitate that. That's on us. I think that, that there are issues with both countries. There are deep relationships with both countries. I think we can handle them better then we're handling them and it doesn't make the problems go away. But I think it, that what diplomats will do is they'll help create greater alignment and move you in a positive direction as opposed to, a, I think, the, the negative direction we're going in. The administration, I think, set out and said, we're going to teach these guys a lesson, right? And we're going to send a message that we have been overcommitted to the region and we're going to align our ambitions with the resources we're willing to commit. And they can't think that they have us on a string anymore. And about winter time, they concluded we're going to teach the administration a lesson. And if the lesson goes through the midterms and the president has a problem getting Congress on board because inflation is high and everything else, I think the, the Saudis and the Emiratis will say, okay, so we're teaching them a lesson. John Alterman, always fascinating and always something to learn from you. Really appreciate your time today. Andrew, always good to talk to you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, 
The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 